When God created humans, he designed us to have consciences. Scripture describes having a conscience like having God's laws written on your heart. While a conscience can be flawed or blunted by sin, we're born with this innate desire for justice, a sense of right and wrong, and even some basic understanding of God's morals. This is one of the arguments you can even use as you make the case for God's existence in the first place. There's just no adequate theory to explain how a conscience could have developed through a process of evolution. Our consciences are just far more complex than what you could argue is necessary for living in a society as a group animal. And our consciences even often contradict laws of evolution and lead us to make decisions that aren't for our survival or aren't for the survival of a society. You could see evidence of God's laws written on the hearts of people in the laws of countries in the world and in how people react to the actions of others. And we could spend a lot of time talking about the areas, of course, that are blind spots if we just rely on this natural knowledge of God's law alone. Or we could examine all the different ways our consciences can go haywire. But while that's interesting, that's a discussion for another time. Because that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about what happens when people don't follow their consciences. Or when their consciences fail them. We're talking about how we respond when someone has done something wrong. We're talking about forgiveness. Technically, this shouldn't even be a conversation we need to have. The world was created to be perfect. People have these moral compasses, the law written on their hearts, consciences. We have laws that add extra threats and rewards for good or bad behavior. Forgiveness really shouldn't need to happen, because wrong shouldn't happen. But ever since the fall into sin, that hasn't been the case. A sad fact of living in a world broken by sin is that sin is going to happen. You will be wronged by others, and you will wrong others. You'll have to deal with the wrong done to you by others, and others will have to deal with the wrong done by you. You can see this happening all around you. Turn on the news for five seconds, or open your web browser or social media app, and it's, it's there, people dealing with sin and its effects, whether they use that term or not. It's a universal experience to sin against others, to have others sin against you. What is not universal, however, is the response to being wronged. At least, it shouldn't be universal. That's what we're going to talk about today. As believers, members of God's church, we have a unique way of handling when we've been wronged. A unique way that reflects our Savior's love for us, and stands out in a world that's confused about righteousness and justice and forgiveness. The church God wants is one that is quick to forgive. Today we've already heard God's instructions to his church through Paul, that he wants us to be uh, a church that's quick to forgive each other, just as we've been forgiven ourselves. We read how Jesus answered Peter's question, how many times should I forgive someone, with a parable that shows how utterly foolish and unthankful it is when we fail to forgive the same way we've been forgiven by God. The world without Christ even gets that forgiveness is a virtue, and good for both the forgiver and the forgiven. That's all well and good when we take it theoretically, but is it really practical? Or is it even really possible? It's one thing to say that we want to be a church characterized by our forgiveness, but it's another thing entirely to actually forgive when things get real. When you're the one who has suffered or been hurt at the hands of another, or it's your loved one who has suffered or been hurt, all of a sudden, forgiveness might not seem like such a good option. It might not seem possible. At least not right away. Don't be fooled, though. This isn't just a lofty goal. 
or some sort of ideal that's unrealistic to give us uh, something to work toward, and uh, but just really a nice thought at the end of the day. The events recorded for us in Genesis chapter 50 show a real-life example of the kind of forgiveness that God has in mind. Forgiveness in action. And it proves that this is something that's not only possible, but good. It's a story of forgiveness that is powerful, undeserved, and maybe even unexpected. It's a story of the forgiveness that God wants to characterize his people, his church. Like a lot of Old Testament readings in our worship services, it is just a part of a much larger narrative. But fortunately for us today, it's a pretty familiar narrative, a familiar story. It's the conclusion of the story of Joseph and his brothers, the sons of Jacob. Jacob has just died, and it raises concern for the majority of his 12 sons. But they weren't concerned about funeral arrangements or who would say the eulogy or how they'd find the right words to remember their father or how the inheritance would be divided even or something else that would make more sense at a father's death. No, they were worried now that dad was out of the picture, the sins of their past might finally come back and catch up with them. Their past sins, of course, are pretty well known. There were 12 brothers born into a challenging family situation, to say the least. Jacob, their father, had married two women, sisters, Leah and Rachel, and his failure to follow God's design for marriage and the favoritism he showed caused a ton of pain and confrontation. The already icky situation became even worse when Leah and Rachel encouraged Jacob to have children with their servants as well. All in all, you had 12 sons, 12 brothers from four different mothers. Joseph was the second to last and firstborn of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph was also Jacob's favorite. Jacob famously gave Joseph that expensive robe. It might have been multicolored. It might have just been fancy, fancy made, uh, well-adorned, uh, not, probably not technicolor. But naturally, this was hurtful to the other brothers. So when Joseph started talking about dreams that he had, that they were all bowing down to him, it pushed them to the breaking point. Jacob sent Joseph out to check on them where they were watching over his flocks and in a jealous rage they attacked and overpowered him. Their plan was to kill him, but Reuben, one of the brothers, spoke up and convinced them to throw him in a pit. Reuben actually wanted to return Joseph to Jacob, but before that could happen, traders came by and the brothers sold Joseph to them as a slave. They took his fancy robe and tore it up and dipped it in blood so that they could cover up what they had done and claim that Joseph had been mauled by an animal. Now many years had passed. The whole family had eventually moved to Egypt and lived there for around 17 years before Jacob finally died. Joseph had given them a good place to live, the land of Goshen, and pretty clearly he had forgiven them, but it's just as clear that they were still a little worried about what might happen to them now that Jacob wasn't around. They realized that they were now 100% at Joseph's mercy. Dad couldn't step in to protect them now. So they sent Joseph a message. Before your father died, they said, he told us to ask you to forgive us. So please forgive us. You can see they were still feeling guilty, can't you? The way they remind Joseph of his father, the dad they share, and remind him of the God that they all serve is just them pulling out all the stops trying to use whatever arguments they can for leniency on his part. They know that their sins are awful. They knew that they deserved some sort of punishment. They just didn't want to suffer it. They were afraid. And this is how we naturally respond when we've done something wrong and we're unable to deny it anymore. Maybe we start out with that arrogant denial of our offense. I didn't do anything wrong or it wasn't that big of a deal. We might 
even think we got away with something and just be happy to keep it a secret? What happens, though, when you're confronted with what you did wrong? Maybe a really quick about face. A lot of pleading, a lot of excuses, right? We know we deserve punishment. We know that what we did was wrong or evil. We just don't want to suffer for it. So we start saying the same things. I've learned my lesson. I know what I did was wrong. I completely understand. I, I completely apologize. I was 100% in the wrong. I see that now. I can never make it up to you. Even when we're caught, we really kind of look to self-preserve. Even if it's just by saying all the right things or acting sorry enough. Maybe it's even a look at something deeper and uglier inside our hearts. Maybe the reason Joseph's brothers were so nervous, and maybe the reason we get so afraid when we're caught in a sin, is not so much that we care about the right or wrong of it, but because we know exactly what we would do if the positions were reversed, if we were the ones with the power and the control. I mean, think of what you would do if you had the absolute power to do whatever you wanted to that person who hurt you the most in your entire life. It's something people dream of. It's a sick and twisted fantasy, but maybe it's something you've dreamed of. It might be why we get so scared when we wrong someone else. We know what we would do, and we're afraid they're going to do the same. But Joseph's brothers had nothing to fear. Instead of being angry with them or even questioning their motives for sending him this message, Joseph is moved to tears when he hears what they had to say. Now, I'm sure the pain of betrayal was something that he had to deal with still, but it wasn't old pain dredged up that had brought him to tears. It wasn't tears of anger either. Joseph was heartbroken that his brothers were still living with this guilt. A guilty conscience is a terrible thing to live with, and it was a burden he didn't want his brothers to have to carry, no matter how hard it was for them to let go of it. His brothers arrived in person then, and they threw themselves flat on the floor at Joseph's feet. We are your slaves, they said. Again, they recognized the debt that they owe him and his power over them as the person that they've wronged, and not just that, even more scary, the second in command of all Egypt. And again, maybe we see ourselves in this overreaction. Our guilty consciences can do the same thing, can't they? We go from that extreme denial of our sin or wrongdoing straight into the depths of extreme shame and guilt and extreme attempts to try to fix things. When we think like this, We've got it all wrong. Our perspective is all out of whack, just like Joseph's brothers. In a twisted sense, even the extreme sorriness is just another act of foolish self-righteousness. We feel like if we can prove to the person we've wronged or to the world or to God that we feel bad enough, then maybe we'll be all right and everything will be better. That's not the answer, though. And dealing with our guilt this way is only ever going to push the issue further down the road without actually addressing it. We might get out of whack, and Joseph's brothers definitely were. Thankfully, Joseph wasn't. When his brothers offered to be his slaves, he simply answered, Don't be afraid. Am I in God's place? Or maybe more literally translated, Am I God? Now we could misunderstand this if we don't take a little bit of care. Joseph wasn't saying that it wasn't his place to judge whether or not his brothers had done something wrong to him. Our guilty hearts in yet another foolish attempt at self-righteousness might like it to mean that. Then we can throw that well-known motto, only God can judge me, at someone, rather than accepting that what we did was wrong. Joseph knew what his brothers had done was wrong. And I'm sure he wouldn't have had an issue telling them that, if that's what needed saying. Sometimes we might have to say that hard thing, like we talked about last week. Sometimes that might mean confronting someone over their sins. 
God does ask us to take that role in each other's lives in a loving yet firm way. Joseph's brothers didn't need their sin pointed out, though. What they needed to hear was that they were forgiven. From a human perspective, Joseph had every right to hold what they did to him against them. His role in Egypt's governmental system meant he had even more authority to punish them for it, but that's not the role he saw himself needing to fill. His brothers were scared of punishment, and his answer, Am I God? really was him saying, That's not my job. It's not my place to punish you. That's up to God. This is what biblical forgiveness, the forgiveness that God wants to be a hallmark of his church, looks like. It's not simply downplaying the wrong by saying, it's okay, no big deal, because it's not okay. A sin is a terrible rebellion against God and it does harm to God and his beloved children. Forgiveness doesn't take away the wrong, nor is it just a decision that whatever harm was done doesn't matter anymore. The forgiveness that God wants isn't even necessarily the feeling that all the emotions have healed. I don't know about you or Joseph, but the emotional damage I would have after being sold into slavery by my own family would be something that lifelong therapy probably could never quite fully resolve. Even when our emotions heal, we still may stumble across triggers in our lives that reflect fresh old wounds and bring pain back. Joseph wasn't downplaying or saying the emotions were perfectly fine. He was forgiving his brothers. He was not holding them accountable. That was God's job, not his. Instead, Joseph would provide for his brothers, and not just them, but their families and their children as well. Joseph goes on to explain his reasoning for forgiving forgiving his brothers. It's not the same reasons for forgiving that you'll find in the wisdom of the world, You can find a lot of articles by psychologists and doctors and sociologists talking about how important forgiveness is, but they'll almost always have a focus on the victim, the person who was wronged. You should forgive because it hurts you to hold on to wrongdoing is the general gist. That's true. It's healthier for you to forgive someone than to hang on to something. But I just don't see that in Joseph's motivation. Certainly, he was blessed by that fact, but... He hadn't forgiven his brothers because it's what he needed to do to move on with his life. As much as we might like to play the victim in the stories we tell ourselves to make sense of our lives, that's not what Joseph was doing. He saw the big picture. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives, he said. We all know how that happened. Joseph had ended up a slave to a high-ranking Egyptian officer named Potiphar, He was such a faithful worker that he got placed in charge of all of Potiphar's house until Potiphar's wife lied about him when he wouldn't sleep with her. He was thrown in prison for assault, and there he was such a faithful prisoner that he was put in charge of the prison. He even was able to interpret some dreams for a couple of fellow inmates. Finally, when Pharaoh had some strange dreams, one of those inmates who had been released finally remembered Joseph, who was brought to Pharaoh and interpreted the dream for him. God revealed to Joseph that Pharaoh's dream meant a severe famine would come to the land in the near future. So Pharaoh put him in charge of all of Egypt, second only to himself, in order to prepare for this famine. Things finally came full circle when the famine got severe enough in the homeland of Canaan that Jacob was forced to send his sons to Egypt to buy food from none other than their own brother. At first, they didn't recognize him. He had been sold into slavery, a Hebrew man, and They certainly didn't expect to meet him again as 
an Egyptian and the second in all command. Joseph tested them to see if they had changed, but finally revealed himself to them in a tearful, joyful reunion and brought them and Jacob to live in safety and prosperity in Egypt, in the land of Goshen. Looking back, Joseph could see that the evil his brothers had done had been turned for good by God. God literally kept his family alive by bringing him to Egypt. It's that perspective and that trust in God that made it easy and second nature natural for Joseph to forgive his brothers. Maybe we don't have quite the clear view of how God has used every evil done against us for good. Maybe God's still in the process of doing it. Maybe we'll never know. That doesn't mean we can't have the same larger perspective that enabled Joseph to forgive his brothers. We have the whole picture. Through Joseph, God didn't just protect Joseph's family and save their lives along with the lives of many people in Egypt and Canaan. God preserved the line of the Savior so that his promise would remain true that one day a descendant of Abraham through Jacob would be born who would wash away the sins of the world. That evil done to Joseph by his brothers is a part of why you can be confident that your sins are forgiven. Here is the true motivation for forgiveness that we have as God's church. We see that big picture. As much as we might sinfully fantasize about holding all the cards and being in that position to exact retribution in exactly the way we want from those who have done evil against us, we can recognize that this is exactly the position God is in with us. Every sin we've ever committed has been against him. He knows them all, and he can do whatever he wants to us to punish us and to get even. It's well within his rights and his capabilities as the Lord. But instead of getting evil with, even with us, God sent his son Jesus to enter our sinful world. He used evils like Joseph's brothers and those who rejected Jesus to keep his promise of a savior alive. And then, finally, on the cross, he punished Jesus for the sins of the world instead of us. With that debt of sin paid and Jesus' perfection applied to us, he declares us not guilty. There's no punishment left to be paid out. Instead, just love and peace and forgiveness. When we see that big picture, doesn't it just seem silly to hold someone else's sins against them? This is really the point of Jesus' parable in the gospel for today. It's what Joseph knew and believed as he forgave his brothers. He saw how God had used that evil for good. And I'm not sure it would have mattered to him if he even saw that or not. He trusted God's promises. And you can too. When we do that, we have something that's completely unique in this world, something that doesn't come naturally. People understand guilt. They understand shame. Just like Joseph's brothers, um, as sinners, we live in it. How we deal with it is the difference. Look at how the world understands that abusing a child or assaulting a woman is wrong. One thing that cancel culture gets absolutely right is that those sins deserve cancellation, and far worse, if we're honest. The world even understands that the consequences of such sins are permanent and life-altering. But beyond that, watch how our society struggles. How long should a felony stay on a person's record? How should we allow people to be reunited or reconciled to society? How long should someone who's harassed people at work be unhirable? At what point do we allow someone to become part of society again? Guilt festers and rots when it's left untreated whether by holding a grudge or by failing to see God's forgiveness. It can create mistrust in relationships like the fear the brothers had for Joseph. 
It robbed them of the opportunity to mourn their dad properly together. It robs the one who's holding the grudge of peace and makes them out to be a hypocrite. It's just not good. And sadly, people see the church as just another judgmental institution ready to hold them accountable for their sins and pile on even more guilt. But what if we could be known for the forgiveness that we have, the forgiveness that we share? What if by our lives we showed a different kind of forgiveness? God's forgiveness. Forgiveness that's one of a kind. Forgiveness that isn't just handed out when it's deserved. Forgiveness that doesn't dishonor the victim of a sin by acting as if the sin had no effect or problem. Neither does God leave the sinner hopeless, drowning in guilt. Instead, he punishes sin as sin deserves in Christ, and then in Christ saves freely in his grace. He calls on you and me to approach forgiveness in the same way. When we look at what he's done for us, even if we can't see all the little details of our life, we can practice that same forgiveness. We really can. We can be a church that's characterized by this, a church that's quick to forgive because we see the big picture and what blessings we'll have as we do that. Amen.